150 feet tall, the original Godzilla towered over the 1954 Tokyo skyline. It dwarfed even the tallest dinosaurs, but in subsequent films, it got even bigger. What has happened here was caused by a force which up until a few days ago was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. In the 1991 reboot, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, the Japanese movie studio that created the franchise, made the monster more than 300 feet tall so that it wouldn't look small next to the modern Tokyo skyline. The 2014 Hollywood remake presents the largest Godzilla yet at just over 350 feet. The problem is that lizards don't get that tall. There are some obvious benefits to being big. You can destroy entire cities with impunity, but many scientists think there are physical limits that prevent lizards from going to Godzilla size. There are plenty of benefits to being small as well. For example, Ant-Man's grocery bill is tiny compared to Iron Man's, but there are some limits in that direction too. Ant-Man has to shop for food every day, but Iron Man goes only once a week. In this episode, we're discussing an idea called scaling, basically how biology changes with body size. The good news is that Godzilla is probably impossible, but it turns out that knowing more about how animals get really big or really small could help us save the whales and even get drug dosages right. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. Almost all biological traits change with body size. For example, heart rate goes down as animals get bigger, while lifespan goes up. So a mouse has a heart rate of 500 beats per minute and lives two years, while an elephant has a heart rate of 30 beats per minute and lives 60 to 70 years. Biologists now understand these relationships so well that if you told your friendly neighborhood biologist an animal's body size alone, he or she could probably tell you a lot about the rest of its biology. In other words, body size is one of the most important traits that an organism has because it's linked to almost every other trait. Part of that is because, just like everything else, living things have to obey the laws of physics. Big animals have to build strong support structures because of the force of gravity, or they can live in the water. Other animals are so small that moving through air or water feels like paddling through molasses. We recently talked about this idea over Skype with Jim Brown and John Harrison. Jim is an emeritus professor at the University of New Mexico, and John is a professor at Arizona State University. They both study how biology changes as things get very big or very small. We first asked them about the known range of body sizes across all organisms. Here's what Jim had to say. The size range of living things is absolutely enormous. It's uh, about... 20 powers of 10, so that's 10 with 20 zeros after it. And to give you a feeling for that, if you look at your skin, there are literally millions of little microbes, mostly bacteria, living on your skin that are so small that you can't even see them. And at the other extreme of the size spectrum, we have giant sequoia trees and uh, great whales Uh, that are larger than uh, tractor-trailer trucks and weigh literally tons. To put 20 orders of magnitude in perspective, if the smallest bacterium were the size of an orange, 
a blue whale would be, and I'm not kidding here, about 30,000 times the diameter of our solar system. Jim said the blue whale, weighing in at 200 tons, is about as big as animals can get. We asked why. Why don't we see animals bigger than that? The quantity of food required by such organisms is enormous, and uh, a correlate of their size and their metabolic rate is that uh, they live very slowly. So it takes them a long time to mature. They grow very slowly, and they... Uh, live a long time. So, Jim, you're saying that Godzilla is out of the question? <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> you know, you'd have to figure out uh, how much uh, he would eat. Godzilla is so big that he probably couldn't find enough food to satisfy his enormous appetite. Energy consumption is one of the traits that changes predictably with body size. Big things need more energy to survive, which might seem like a disadvantage, but there's an upside. Here's how biologist John Harrison explains that upside. So from the 1800s, we've known that in some animals, the, um, the general pattern is that larger animals use more energy in total, but less energy per gram. And, um, and this has been uh, a very broadly demonstrated pattern uh, across mammals to um, fish and insects and all different kinds of animals. This has been a central mystery in biology. How fast an animal consumes energy increases more slowly than its body size does. Big animals don't consume energy as fast as we expect. Another way to say that is an elephant cell is a cheap date. Mouse cells, which are about the same size as elephant cells, consume energy a lot faster. They're not at all a cheap date. Elephants just have lots more cells than mice, so their total rate of energy consumption is higher. This trend is true for all kinds of organisms. Birds, beetles, bats, bacteria, barnacles. In general, if you double body size, you only use about 75% more energy. But it's not obvious why. There are a few different theories. When we talked with Jim, he used a great analogy about a building to explain one of them. Life as it's evolved has faced this enormous challenge that it's all based on essentially the same stuff at the molecular level. Organisms are made out of the same molecules, and they use basically the same chemical reactions uh, to do their work. And then somehow, as life increases from bacteria to whales, these systems have to be put together in such a way that uh, they keep working uh, as they get bigger and bigger. And I think, to me, the essence of scaling is that it involves sort of two elements. So on the one hand, there are things that are absolutely invariant, that don't change. And these are the molecules and reactions. And then there are other aspects of the system that have to be scaled as the system gets bigger and bigger. And let me make the analogy uh, to a building, right? We have buildings that range from small houses to, you know, gigantic skyscrapers. And if you look at those, they're all, the, the fundamental building blocks of, of those systems are the same. The tiles on the floor and in the ceilings, uh, the structure of the concrete, uh, the outlets uh, for the electrical uh, appliances, the faucets in the bathroom, 
all of those things are invariant. They don't change with the size of the building. They're held constant. But then as we make a building bigger and bigger, there are other things that we absolutely have to change or the building won't work. Uh, we have to change the size of the beams and the support structure. And this is similar to the biomechanics that John talked about. We also have to change system for supplying resources. So the size of the water mains and electrical mains that come in and how those branch uh, to get to the endpoints that are invariant. And we have to change the uh, size of the heating and cooling system uh, so that the uh, system can uh, maintain a, a relatively constant internal climate. And all of those things have to be scaled. And there are very rigid constraints. Uh, what I call, you know, rules, almost laws, as to how those aspects of the system have to change as the uh, as organisms have evolved over these many, many orders of magnitude in body size, or even over the life cycle of an individual organism. You know, a, a tuna fish starts life as an egg that is almost microscopic, and it grows to a mature size that can be a metric ton in mass. And as that organism grows, uh, it has to continually make uh, these changes. So the building blocks are put together in ways that are supported and work and support the structure and function of the whole system. The controversy, why big organisms use less energy than we might expect, has raged in journal articles and scientific meetings for at least the last 20 years. The problem is that it's hard to place metaphors like Jim's building onto firm biological footing. After all, what are the water mains and the bricks and electrical outlets in real organisms anyway? Some groups have argued that blood vessels in really big animals can't distribute energy or oxygen fast enough to maintain a high rate of energy consumption. Big animals are forced to slow down because their hearts can't pump enough nutrients to their huge bodies, while small ones can be much more active. You can actually see this if you look at animals in nature. Mice or squirrels tend to be much more hyper than, say, cows or whales. Other groups think big animals simply spend energy differently and for different reasons than small animals. Big animals have to live longer to get bigger. You can't just snap your fingers and poof, trillion-celled squirrel. But Jim says that there's more to it than this. And uh, because one of the things that we know is that these little bacteria, uh, which have very high metabolic rates per gram, also turn over at very high rates. So they live on the order of you know minutes, whereas whales and sequoia trees are living on time scales of centuries. And we know that there are many phenomena related to aging uh, that appear to be due to the long-term deleterious effects of uh, metabolic processes. When animals use energy, they produce poisonous molecules that may cause them to age. You've probably heard about these chemicals. They're called free radicals, and they can damage DNA and other molecules in living cells. We need to keep using energy to survive, but the faster we use energy, the more free radicals we produce. Small things don't have to worry about this problem much because they usually live such short lives anyway. The number of free radicals in their bodies doesn't really matter. 
They happily pollute their own bodies in the interest of maturing and making lots of babies quickly. Big things, on the other hand, usually have to live a long time to successfully reproduce. They might need to slow down their energy consumption so they don't accumulate free radicals. John said one way to think about this is that small animals tend to be high performance, while big animals tend to be safe. Think mice and race cars and elephants and minivans. You know, one of my favorite examples of this actually is the, the posture of animals. So if you look at mammals, you know, the classic, uh, if, you, if you look at a mouse or a rabbit, gerbil, they tend to be in this crouched position that gives them uh, lots of acceleration and mobility. And if you look at a big mammal like a horse or a elephant, they've got straight legs that reduce their mobility and agility, but, but um, help reduce forces on the joints that potentially would cause them to have broken legs. And so, so this, again, is, I think, an example of uh, the selection for performance versus safety. And For biologists like Art and me, these ideas are super fun, and that basic insight is good enough. But it's reasonable to ask why any non-scientist should care about these ideas. What's the value in understanding how biology changes with body size? According to Jim, there are plenty of good reasons to study this. We're beginning to realize, for example, that humans can potentially have large impacts on fisheries for large fish and on potentially on conservation of whales by heavy fishing on uh, small fish, anchovies and krill that form the base of those food chains. And you can actually you know, apply the metabolic theory to make some quantitative estimates of what the values are, what levels of uh, exploitation some of these populations, uh, human exploitation, these populations can withstand and, and so on. Jim's saying that understanding how energy consumption scales with body size can help us manage fisheries or estimate how much hunting pressure populations of wildlife can sustain. And these ideas have implications for own health, too, because small humans don't have the same biology as big humans. When we started doing our work, we were amazed to get telephone calls from physicians who said that when they, the way drugs are prescribed to uh, kids versus humans, they don't take differences in metabolic rates into account. They just scale up linearly. They just multiply. So, you know, if the dose for an adult is 10x and you have a kid that weighs a tenth of that, uh, you give the kid the medication, you know, a tenth of the medication. But the kid actually has a higher metabolic rate per gram. It's processing things fast. And our medical community wasn't taking that into account, believe it or not. Learning about how size affects biology can help us make all sorts of predictions. What types of animals are most apt to harbor infections that could spill into humans? What will be the challenges of building tiny robots that have to find their own resources in the environment? And what influences climate change could have on different species? We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Biology. If you'd like to hear a longer, lightly edited version of our conversation with Jim and John, you can get it on our website, bigbiology.org, or iTunes or Google Play. The first few episodes of this show are kind of an experiment, and we really want to hear what you think about it. Leave us a comment on our Facebook page or send us a tweet and let us know how we can make the show better. What would you like to hear on the podcast? What are your big biology questions? Thanks to Matt Ploys for producing this episode. Thanks also to Gerard Sepes, Steve Lane, and Laura Shonley, and the rest of the big biology production team for their help. All the music on this episode is from Pottington Bear. And just so you know, we're going to put this show on pause during the holidays, but we'll be back with new episodes in January. Thanks for listening.